0: I wonder how many here this morning couldn't find their keys when they went to walk out the door. Uh, surely in a gathering of, of this size, someone had difficulty finding their keys, and if, if not keys, and perhaps a beloved cell phone. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, we've, we've all been there before. We've, we've all uh, kind of felt a sense of relief, if not joy, when we, when we have lost and then found our, our keys or phone. I, I, if you're a parent... Uh, then you've probably seen and heard that joy in your son or daughter's eyes and and voice when you found their lost teddy bear, that stuffed animal that they have, they have to have, or or they can't sleep. Perhaps you've known a a good bit of joy when you find that stuffed animal because it means that you're going to get to sleep. Our experience of joy at, at finding something that has been lost I think, pales in comparison to the joy of God when sinners are found, repent, and come to God for mercy. You know, those examples of finding your keys or phone or that teddy bear are really rather trivial when they're contrasted against God's joy at receiving sinners. He takes great delight in receiving sinners. He is filled with a kind of joy that is is marked by singing and dancing. And that's precisely the picture that Jesus paints of God the Father in Luke 15, the chapter that we're studying together this morning in God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you can find the passage beginning, I believe, on page 874. But first, let's remember where we've come from and where we're going in Luke's Gospel. The Gospel of Luke is essentially a Greco-Roman biography. It's a Greco-Roman biography of Jesus Christ. Uh, Greco-Roman biographies usually made a brief mention of the main figures ancestry, kind of like what we have in Luke 3 with Jesus genealogy. But their main focus was to move rapidly toward the person's public life. What did they do in front of everybody that made them so important? These biographies, they were normally arranged chronologically, sometimes though breaking from that chronology in order to summarize the main aim of a person's teaching. They would often conclude by recounting a person's death. And as we can see from our study of Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel is uh, just such an account and what makes Luke's Gospel especially worthy of our consideration is that Luke, like the other Gospel writers, based his biography on eyewitness testimony. We are in the middle of this biography of Jesus. Even more specifically, we're in the middle of the middle. Uh, we're in the middle of a 10-chapter journey to Jerusalem where Jesus is teaching His disciples. He's teaching the religious leaders. And he's teaching the crowds who have gathered around Him and who are following Him. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus, He got on this road to go to Jerusalem. And in chapter 19, verse 44, Jesus will arrive there in order to complete His life's mission, which is dying on the cross and rising from the grave for the salvation of sinners. In the, in the past few weeks, we've been listening to Jesus teach us about the nature of the kingdom, about how people like you and me can enter into His kingdom. Last week we studied Luke 14. We were invited into an interesting dinner conversation. Jesus taught His host and, his, and, and the fellow guests that the kingdom of heaven will be filled with those who are humble. Those who are humble. Those who, who recognize their need for God and His forgiveness. And who accept God's invitation to join His heavenly banquet. Jesus basically explained to his hearers and to us that God is pleased to receive repentant sinners into his kingdom. And as Jesus continues on the road to Jerusalem, he continues to drive this message home to his hearers in Luke chapter 15. And as we prepare to read Luke chapter 15, uh, and we are going to read all of it in one shot, kind of in just a minute. I want to put three things on, on kind of your radar as we prepare to read. Three main emphases of Jesus' teaching here which is really going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Through three consecutive parables, Jesus communicates three things. Number one, God's pursuit of the lost. God's pursuit of the lost. Number two, God's plea to the proud. God's plea to the proud. And number three, God's pleasure in receiving sinners. God's pleasure in receiving sinners. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're moving into each new section. But let me encourage you to try and hear and see those three things, For yourself, as we read the text now. Let me read Luke 15. Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him and he said to his son son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, our approach to this this wonderful text this morning, it's going to be slightly different than what we're ordinarily accustomed to. So very often, the text that we're studying together will kind of lend itself simply to working through it in kind of a verse-by-verse fashion. Uh, Sometimes, however, I think the text lends itself to something of a thematic approach uh, as the same themes are found in each discrete section of the text. So this is what happens here in Luke 15. Uh, Using three different parables, Jesus stresses these three themes through three stories with the same point, which is simply this. God is filled with joy when sinners who were lost are found. That's the whole point, I think, of Luke 15. So if you want to know the point of Luke 15 in a single sentence, that's it. God is filled with joy when sinners who are lost are found. And I'm sure you noticed this in verses 7 and 10 and 24. All three of those verses make it obvious that our Heavenly Father rejoices when sinners, when lost sinners, repent and are found. You know, sometimes we kind of overcomplicate the Bible. But there's no need to do that here. The, the obvious point is obviously the point. God is filled with joy when sinners who were lost are found. And one of the most wonderful aspects of this truth that's located here in Luke 15 is this, is that God, he actually goes after the lost. See, that's how the lost get found. God goes to find them. So let's consider our first point, God's pursuit of the lost. Jesus' parables in Luke 15 are set up by a crowd of interesting people there. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2, they're kind of leaning in to hear what Jesus has to say. Tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. These are people, these tax collectors uh, and sinners, they would have been considered the outcasts of society. In the the region where Jesus is traveling about, the tax collectors were effectively uh, viewed... As employees of the Roman government, uh, they would go and extract taxes from their fellow Jews uh, and thereby be viewed as traitors. What's more, many of them uh, would often, through their greed, charge kind of a higher rate than was really necessary in order to line their pockets. Tax collectors were not the only ones drawing near here. We see so were sinners. Sinners uh, described here are those who, kind of generally speaking, live in open rebellion against God. They are those who are are far off from God. They're, They're really publicly known as sinners and socially reviled. These are the kinds of people who are eager to draw near and hear Jesus teaching. But why? Well, because Jesus has been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is open to them. That is a marvelous message of mercy for those who know themselves to be sinners. What sinner wouldn't want to draw near to hear that message? And I think that this should motivate us to draw near to Jesus because He tells us that the lost may be found and loved and so enter the kingdom, His kingdom. Why would we fail to draw near to hear such a loving word from our God? While these tax collectors and sinners are drawing near, the Pharisees are drawing on the deep well of bitterness that is in their hearts. The tax collectors and sinners are positively eager to hear what Jesus has to say, but the Pharisees are po- positively disgusted with what Jesus has been saying for these last several chapters and doing. They are grumbling, or as some translations put it, they are murmuring. You, you know what's being described here. Perhaps you were doing it uh, this morning. My guess is is that we all murmured about something or someone this past week. You know, work or co-workers, maybe a parent, grumbling about what a parent told us to do, a spouse, what they said to us, maybe grumbling about our siblings, maybe even a friend or a roommate. This is really uh, one of the things that I find hardest about the Christian life. Do everything without complaining. <laughs> everything. I, you know, I'm good at grumbling, um, and that's not something I should be good at. I have to be careful, I have to be mindful of grumbling against God and His goodness. All that Jesus said and did was good and the Pharisees grumbled at it. All that God says in His Word and does in my life is good and I must not grumble about it. He only gives what is best and it is best even if in the moment we cannot see that what He has given is best to put it politely the the Pharisees and the scribes the religious leaders were grumpy about who Jesus kept company with they were grumpy about the fact that Jesus had been saying that these tax collectors and sinners that these are precisely the kind of people that God loves to find and forgive and it is in response to their grumpy grumbling that Jesus tells these parables Jesus tells them for the tax collectors and sinners and he tells them for the Pharisees and the scribes Now, note something interesting there in verse 3. You see that? The text says, So he told them this parable. Parable, singular. And yet we have three. As we come upon each new parable in chapter 15, we find that they're linked by a connecting word, really. Luke views these stories as one cohesive unit. And we need to remember that parables are stories. As I mentioned last week, these parables are stories which Jesus intends for his hearers to think of themselves as characters inside the story and then to personally take to heart the story's wisdom and truth. You can see that there in verse 4 when Jesus says, What man of you? See, Jesus, see there we see Jesus. He's relating this story of the parable the lost sheep to his hearers. He helps them identify with it And having brought them kind of inside the story, Jesus tells them that precisely the same kind of thing that they would do with a lost sheep, God does with sinners. And this is really another characteristic of parables, placing things kind of side by side, right next to each other. Just like you would go after a lost sheep, so God goes after sinners, after lost sinners. Notice how uh, verse 4 ends. A good shepherd goes after his sheep until he finds it. And that's just how it is with God. In the parable of the lost coin, just found there in verses 8 to 10, Jesus does the same thing. Notice the direct continuation with that word or in verse 8. This is the same thing stated just slightly differently. Instead of a man, verse 4, we have a woman, verse 8. This woman uh, does not have lost sheep. She has a lost coin. Notice how her pursuit of the lost coin is described. How does she seek for it? Diligently. She she lights a lamp and she sweeps the house and she spends effort. And it's an effort that's filled with care. She looks until she finds it. May I ask you, why does does anyone look for anything? does anyone look for anything? Well, it's because they want to find it. And the same is true with God and the lost. He pursues the lost. He goes after them and he does until he finds them. Consider how verse 9 begins. And when she is founded. Do you see that there? It's not a matter of if. But verse 9, consider how verse 9 there. And when she is founded. It is a matter of when. The same is said about verse 5 in the lost sheep you see there. And when he is it. We see that God cannot lose one of all of those who belong to him. That's what we read in John chapter 6 verse 39. God, you see, He pursues the lost, and we should too. In in reading about this shepherd and this woman, we see that they were seeking and searching diligently. Shouldn't we be doing the same thing with the lost? Brothers and sisters, are we seeking the lost? Christian, you have been commissioned by the resurrected Lord, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and heaven and on earth to do this. Jesus told you and me, He he told, commanded really, every believer in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 to go and make disciples. He told us to baptize them. He told us to teach them, to observe all that He has commanded. And if we're going to be faithful, that is going to take a lot of effort. And it is going to require diligence. First, we've got to go and find someone who is lost. Then we've got to tell them how to be found. Uh, A friend once told me that one of the main hindrances to evangelism is that it's not on our minds. The, The lost are clearly on God's mind. If we're going to be evangelistic we must be mindful of the lost. If we're not thinking about the lost, it's unlikely that we'll be pursuing the lost. Think about those around you in your family in your workplace or in your neighborhood who don't know Jesus but don't just think about them seek them out seek them out in prayer pray for them by name pray that God would find them and seek them out personally carve out time in your schedule to develop or further your relationship with them not only do we have to think about evangelism but we almost have to plan for it too. And this is perhaps especially important in the consummately busy D.C. area. Maybe you set aside one lunch hour a week to invite a friend from your workplace, or your neighborhood to have lunch, or, or consider having a, a neighbor over for dinner once a month. Let's start somewhere. Let's start seeking the lost. God pursues the lost. Now, all of this conversation about God pursuing the lost may, may lead you to wonder, well, what does it mean, really, to be lost? Maybe you wonder if that's you. Maybe you think that what it means to be lost is is exemplified in the parable of the prodigal son. And in many ways I think that you'd be right. The parable of the prodigal son expresses what it means to be lost in the most tangible and human way of these three parables, doesn't it? While we catch a glimpse of what it means to be lost from the parables of the sheep and the coin in the sense that they're kind of separated and away from the shepherd and the woman, the parable the prodigal son rightly articulates what it means to be lost in terms of our relationship to God here's the first attribute of what it means to be lost first attribute is this you want God to get lost that's the effective force of verse 12 take a look at Luke 15 verse 12 and the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them now you see, when, when the younger son asks his father for his portion of the property, he is essentially saying that he wants his father dead. He, he wants the outcome of his father's death to come out now. Dad, I wish that you were dead. I wish that you were no longer in my life. I don't want to live in your house. I don't want to live under your authority or by your rules. I want to rule my own life. That is the very nature of sin. Sin is nothing less than rebellion against God. The the loving Heavenly Father who made us and brought us into this world and gave us life and breath. Sin is the rejection of God's authority, of the author's authority to rule in our lives. If the first attribute of what it means to be lost is rejection and rebellion against the Heavenly Father who made us, then the second attribute of what it means to be lost, is running away from him and living under our own rule. That's what the younger son of the parable did, wasn't it? Look at verse 13, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. It's interesting to note that this idea of reckless living in the original language in Greek, uh, carries with it this notion of of an unrestrained kind of living. The older son will describe his living a a little later in verse 30, saying that he devoured his property with prostitutes. This son, this younger son, got just what he thought he wanted. Freedom from his father. Freedom from authority. Freedom to live how he wanted. Friends, we ought to be very careful with our freedom. Very careful with asserting our freedom from authority the assertion of our freedom does not always lead to good for our souls it can actually lead to death which is another attribute of being lost you see that there in verse 24 where we read for this my youngest son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate the same sentiment is expressed in almost the exact same language in verse 32 you'll see there lost is being held in parallel with being dead they basically kind of define each other it's interesting isn't it that the son who wanted his father dead was the one who actually pursued spiritual death when he rebelled against and rejected his father this is the testimony of the Bible sin leads to death Satan and sin promise us life you will not surely die Satan says to us Oh, Satan and sin, they promise us life, but what they really deliver is death. That's the truth of Genesis 3, when Adam sinned against God. Sin led to death. It's the truth that we learn in Genesis. Uh, sorry, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Where we learn that the wages, the payment that's due to our working in sin is death. This is what is true of all humanity, apart from being made alive by the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that apart from God regenerating us, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. What does it mean to be lost? I think it can be described in four words. Dislocation, disassociation, disobedience, and death. Dislocation. We run away from our Father. Disassociation. We want to throw off our Maker's rule. Disobedience. We break God's commands. And death, this is where all of our rebellion leads. It can lead there physically, but it certainly leads there spiritually. This was true of the younger brother. But it was also true of the older brother, as we'll see in a moment. When thinking of the parable of the prodigal son, maybe it's hard for us to see how God's pursuit is present in the parable. Admittedly, I think the theme of God's pursuit of the lost is, is a little more muted in this parable, parable of the prodigal son. But it's still there. Did you notice that as much as the son wanted his father dead, the father really never died in his mind. When he was looking at the, the pigs and their food, who came to his mind there in verse 17? His father and his father's generosity. His father to his mind. He could not die. You see no matter how much we scream and yell at God, no matter how much we say I reject you, I reject your authority, and no matter how far we run, we cannot run from the fact that he is the God who made us in his image. He is the one who gave us consciences and the created order to testify to us of his existence and eternal glory. We can never escape that truth. Oh, we can suppress it. We try to push it way down. But we cannot escape it. God can use our consciences as part of His pursuit. You know that God is real. You know that God is true. And now you know from God's Word that He pursues the lost. Is He pursuing you? The shepherd went after the sheep. The woman sought for her coin, and the father watched for his son. You see that in verse 20. He watched, and he ran, and he laid eyes on his son coming down the road. And here's the thing about the parable of the prodigal son. The father pursued the son who ran away, but he also pursued the son who stayed. He not only moved toward the son who was a long way off, but he moved toward the son who was physically near. He moved not only toward the son who brought shame upon his house, but he moved toward the son who by all outward appearances brought him honor, who was faithful and obedient. Take a look at verse 28. Verse 28 there. But he, this is the older brother, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. You see that? He pursued him. He went after him. He sought out this older brother. What is he doing? He's going after a lost son. He had two lost boys, not just one. Can we really say that this older brother was lost? Yes, I think we can. In fact, in the context of Luke's gospel, I don't think we can understand this in any other way. He has refused to go into the celebration, the banquet. In chapter 14, the chapter just before this one, Jesus told the parable of the great banquet. And the emphasis of chapter 14, verse 24, is uh, very near the end, well, two-thirds of the way through, uh, what was was that those who refused to go into God's banquet will be lost to eternal punishment. While he may have been physically near his father, this older brother, his heart was far from him. And it's not hard to see the younger brother is coordinate, really, with the tax collectors and sinners who have gathered to hear Jesus. It's also not difficult to see that the proud Pharisees are perfectly described in the elder brother. And this is where... I'd like for us to turn and consider more carefully the father's plea to the elder brother. This is our our second point, God's plea to the proud. Here we want to take a closer look at Luke chapter 15 verses 25 through 32. Here in Luke chapter 15 verses 25 through 32, I think that these verses perfectly portray the Pharisees who had gathered to grumble about Jesus' company and His teaching. They grumbled at God's generosity and grace. Isn't the elder brother's complaint there in verse 29? Isn't that just simply a restatement of verse 2? My father receives sinners. He eats with them. Like the elder brother, the Pharisees were clinging to every good work that they had done to earn God's favor and pleasure. The older son pleaded his case when he said, These many years I have served you. Verse 29, I think, could be translated even more forcefully for what the son is implying there is that he has served his father as a slave. I have slaved for you, Dad. I have done everything right for you. And you've given me nothing. See, he casts himself as the unloved and cast off victim. What about the father's love? Has he not enjoyed the love of his father these many years? You see this, he didn't have a real relationship with his father. Even though he was right there with him. He, he viewed himself as the father's slave, not his son. I wonder if you, if you, or if you have, viewed your relationship with God in that way. You know, sometimes we are tempted to invert our relationship with God and make it about us instead of about Him. The older brother, you'll see there in verse 30, he even disowns his brother. He calls him this son of yours. He is nothing like him. He sees, he's kind of giving him the stiff arm. Just like those Pharisees are nothing like those tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's not unrighteous. Rather, he's Righteous. How would you reply to such pride and arrogance would you reply with the tender plea that this father gives this plea is really nothing other than the plea of God in heaven in in verse 31 notice the tenderness in that word son can be translated even my child I wonder if you can hear the anguish in this father's voice I hear it like every parent who has had a child kind of steaming mad at them. At that moment, I think that breaks your heart because all you want in that moment is for your son or daughter just to know just how much you love them. Son, it's that tenderness. This son has pushed himself away from the family in verses 29 and 30. He's even kind of excluded. He's cut his dad out from his joy. Excluded his father from the celebration that he wanted to have with his friends. Here, the father is trying to draw him back in. It's as if the father is saying, I'm I'm not going to let you do that. I'm I'm not going to let you distance yourself from me. I love you too much. You are not my slave. You are my son. Son, you have my presence. I am always with you. Verse 31, is that not reward enough? Is God the Father not enough for you? You have my property. All that I have is yours. See that in verse 31. Is the kingdom of heaven not enough for you, Christian? Then we find the heart of the Father's plea there in verse 32, which is simply this, share in my pleasure share in my joy you see the father tells this older son in no uncertain terms in verse 32 that it was fitting which is to say it is right to celebrate and be glad why for or because a dead and dirty sinner has been found and fitted for heaven you elder brother you pharisee do not decide Who has a right to enter the kingdom? God the Father does. You may not throw off God's rule and make up your own. He rules. God the Father welcomes those who repent of their sin. Your sin is pride. And it is blinding you to God's grace. It is blinding you to your own need for grace. So repent of your dislocation, your disassociation your disobedience and death repent of your dislocation your own unwillingness to join my banquet you see the father entreated him to come in repent of your disassociation disassociating yourself from me and my family repent of your disobedience I've called you to come and you've refused repent of your pride it will lead to death This proud older brother could not see that he was lost. He could not see his own sin. He was so caught up in the sin of his brother. You see here, you you can smell like a pigsty without ever having been near them. You can smell so foul with that self-righteousness you can outwardly have it together but the pride and the smell of self-righteousness flows out of our hearts and the older brother he doesn't see it he doesn't see the log in his eye he sees his brother's sin but he doesn't see his own I'm reminded of what Charles Spurgeon uh, once wrote when he said Eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. If you have judged yourself with candor, honesty, if you've judged yourself with candor, you will not judge others with severity. You will be more ready to pity than to condemn, more anxious to hide a multitude of sins than to punish a single sinner. I wonder if you've noticed in in reading this passage how this parable is left open. Jesus leaves this parable open. We're not told whether or not the elder brother went into the party, into the banquet. His repentance is left open. Now remember, Jesus is telling this parable to tax collectors and sinners, to Pharisees and scribes. Is this not a gracious plea from Jesus to those who are grumbling and murmuring against him? Is it not gracious that He really actually holds the door to the kingdom open and says, I'm pleading with you, come into the kingdom, celebrate, join in the Father's joy and in His pleasure. And that's really what we've kind of been skipping over through our study so far. Something that we need to take a closer look at. God's pleasure in receiving sinners. So this is our third and final point. God's pleasure in receiving sinners sinners. In this chapter, I think we first see the pleasure of God in sinners, in God the Son. You see, what made the Pharisees so grumpy, according to verse 2, was the fact that Jesus received sinners and ate with them. The truth of the Bible is not only that Jesus is God in the flesh, that He's the second person of the triune Godhead, but also that He perfectly reveals the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. John chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that Jesus, the one who's telling this parable to us here, that Jesus has made God the Father known. What Jesus has labored to make plain in all of His life is that His pleasure in receiving sinners reveals God the Father's pleasure in receiving sinners. Still there's more, as you know. In the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd rejoices when the lost sheep is found. And then Jesus declares there in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, this is a, a pronouncement from Jesus. When He utters the phrase, I tell you so, just so I tell you, you'll notice that this is what Jesus is doing and He is claiming authority. To reveal heaven's perspective on what has taken place he does it again in verse 10 he says just so I tell you there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents and, and all of this raises the question if God is pleased to receive repentant sinners what does it mean to repent and and who needs to repent Jesus said in verse 7 that the righteous don't have need of repentance Does that mean that some people don't need to repent? No. I think Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here, perhaps even sarcastically. Everyone needs to repent. Who is righteous? No one is righteous. No, not even one, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10. As we've seen in the parable of the prodigal son, both the younger brother and the older brother need to repent. Verse 7 is actually, I think, a gentle nudge from Jesus to the Pharisees. He's calling them to abandon their self-righteousness and to repent of their unrighteousness, to see themselves as sinners, to recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All need to repent, all have sinned. But, but what is repentance? Well, I think we see it described in what takes place in the younger son, as he, a Jewish boy, Remember this, a Jewish boy is contemplating eating unclean food with unclean animals. I mean, he has hit absolute rock bottom and nobody's giving him anything. Repentance is first and foremost a gracious gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, we learn that the preaching of the good news of Jesus, God gave the Gentiles repentance. Repentance is a gift. Repentance, secondly... Admits guilt Repentance admits guilt notice in verse 18 the younger son speaking to himself Admits his guilt saying father. I have sinned against heaven and before you He is not saying he's sorry. He's not merely saying he feels sorry. He's not merely saying he feels guilty He is confessing that he is guilty He's going beyond a mere feeling He is confessing that he's rebelled against God. He's taking responsibility for sin. He says, I have sinned. Have you confessed your sin? And have you confessed that you're a sinner? A repentant heart, thirdly, I think is a grieved heart. A repentant heart is a grieved heart. Is there not grief in the younger son's words in verse 19? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that not grief for all that He has done to bring shame upon His Father's name? It sounds like what we read in the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. You see why this kind of sense of the sinfulness of sin is a gift of God. I mean, naturally, we don't look Upon ourselves in this way grieving over the sinfulness of sin is a gift of God because our God is graciously beginning to help us take his perspective on sin to see what an affront it is just how it dishonors his name and removes him from his throne fourth we see here that repentance is remarked by a retu- is marked by a return notice what this younger son does he leaves behind his rebellion His running away, his reviling of his father and of his house. And he returns home. Now perhaps you say to yourself, I can't do that. I I can't leave my sin behind. I can't turn away from it. It has has a grip on me. Friend, it is better to be held in the loving grip of a gracious father than in the death grip of sin. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you the grace to make a return to God. Repentance is marked by a return. Fourth, repentance is motivated. Understand this, repentance is motivated. What encourages us to repent? Repentance is motivated by mercy. You see, repentance is not a turning from sin into an open void. It is a turning away from sin to the mercy of God. This son, he dared to hope that when he turned up to his father's house, his father would be merciful to him. That in mercy, he'd give him a job among his servants. But we see here that God's mercy is so much richer than what we have even dared to imagine. He believed that his father would be merciful. Repentant sinners believe that God is merciful, that He pardons sin and forgives and invites and receives sinners, not as servants, but as sons. That's the fifth thing we notice about repentant, Repentant sinners live as sons. They do not live as slaves. The Father's love is so extravagant, so excessive, and so eternal that those who have known this love of the Father will live as beloved sons and daughters to the glory of His name. Friend, have you admitted your guilt? Are you grieved over your sin? Have you begun your return home? Have you been made aware of God's mercy? Are you living as a son or as a slave? Can I show you the the pleasure of the Father once more? You see, in the first two parables, Jesus declares, really, God's pleasure in repentant sinners. But in this third parable, I think Jesus fully describes it. I'm so grateful for this description of the Father's love for us. We see God's pleasure in repentant sinners, and then He is watching and waiting for them, for us, for you. We see God's pleasure in the father's running to his son. He cannot wait to bring him into his house. Friend, he cannot wait for you to come home. He wants you to come home. He knows that your life is stained with sin. He knows that you're foul. And yet in his amazing love, he will embrace you in his arms. He will pull you in. And kiss you showering you with his love he will bring you into his family as what the robe and the ring signify he will watch over you with care he will look down and see that you're shoeless and give you shoes this cannot be no son of mine will be without (laughs) shoes maybe your life is not filled with the apparent kind of open reckless living of the younger son maybe instead your your life is marked by the foul stench of self-righteousness that marked the life of the elder brother even to you God is delighted to receive into his heavenly banquet to sing and to dance with you that's what was happening at this party and celebration for this sinner God takes great delight great pleasure in receiving sinners but how can this be and this is where I'd like for us to conclude I want us to conclude by thinking about the question how can this be has that thought crossed your mind has the thought crossed your mind you know the older brother kind of has a point doesn't he This younger brother really doesn't deserve all of this. He doesn't deserve any of this. The same is true of the elder brother too. The sinner that he is. How can the father invite such a self-righteous, entitled and sinful person into his kingdom? Have you wondered how can God be the just God, the holy God, the righteous God that the Bible describes and reveals him to be and receive sinners with such pleasure? Don't they have to answer for their sin? How can he receive them? Well, I think the answer to that question is found in the third son that this text presents. And you may be looking down wondering, wait, does he have a verse 33 or something in his translation? I don't see a third son here. No, I've got got the same, same Bible you've got. The third son is the son who's telling this story. He's the key to it all. The son who is on the road to Jerusalem. This road that leads to his death. You see, all of this is all about Jesus. It's all about those tax collectors and sinners standing on this road, listening to him, thinking to themselves. Thinking through whether or not they will embrace Jesus in faith. It's all about those Pharisees and those scribes, those proud men. Thinking through whether or not they will try to earn their way to pleasing God, which cannot be done or whether or not they will trust in the Son who has come from heaven. Jesus is the Son that God the Father gave up to save sinners like you and me, so that we could be found and redeemed and received into His heavenly kingdom. Jesus is the Son who makes such a reception possible. God is just, and our sins must be punished. It is Jesus who was obedient to the Father all the way to death. He never ran away from His Father and He always lived perfectly humble before Him. Obeying His every command. Jesus was obedient to the Father all the way to death. He pleased God the Father with every breath, every word and every deed. He never lived as a slave. He always lived as the true and perfect Son. He pleased God the Father by willingly, joyfully laying His life down in His death on the cross as a substitute for sinners, paying the price for their sins. God is just. Sins are punished. And they are punished either in Jesus Christ or we are punished for them. The only question is, is whether or not we will embrace Jesus, the Son of God, hiding ourselves in Him. Trusting that He paid the price for our sins as a substitute in our place on the cross. And after Jesus died on the cross, God was pleased to raise Him up from the grave three days after His death. So that all who would ever repent and believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, I want to urge you to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope of salvation. Friends, if you would be received into the Father's house, received into God's kingdom, you must come to understand the depth of the Father's love revealed in giving His one and only Son. In the words of the song that we'll sing in just a moment, How deep, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Praise God. Let's pray together.